We knew for some time that it was coming, this investigative report by an investigator that's seriously credentialed. But when it came, it landed with a true impact. I'm talking, of course, about the report written by Dr. Eric Rim, who's a nutritionist at Harvard, that concludes that French fries are bad for you. <laughs> In Dr. Rim's most unfortunate phrase, he alleges that French fries are, in quotes, starch bombs that are not good for your health. Even though they're vegetables grown from the ground, they're not good for you. Now, when this first came out, it was a big New York Times story. I happen to love French fries, and at first I was taken aback, but then I realized he's not talking to me, and he's not talking about me. And here's why. I don't eat regular French fries, I eat sweet potato fries. <laughs> There's a restaurant in Newton, I, I won't really name it other than to say it's Walnut Grill. <laughs> and when you go to Walnut Grill and you order a main course, often the waiter will give you a choice for your sides, and the choice is, would you like salad or fries? Now, how is the person supposed to answer that question? So this is not the main point of my sermon, but I want to say that I think salad is a problematic choice because it's really hard to figure out how to get it right with the dressing. If you have it dressed, it comes out drenched. And if you say, I'll have salad to the side, it just never really quite works. They never really mesh. So to play it safe, I say, I'll take the sweet potato fries, thinking that it's a healthy choice because it's orange. So, so one day I'm driving and I hear an NPR segment featuring Dr. Eric Rim. And she asked the question that was on all inquiring minds, namely, are all French fries created equal? Maybe sweet potato fries are in a better category. And this is what Dr. Rim says to Deborah Becker, the NPR reporter. I quote, there really aren't any differences. Sweet potato fries are orange, so they have some carotenoids in them. But for the most part, the starch in potatoes is going to be starch, and that gets absorbed into your bloodstream faster than sugar. Over the long term, that's just not good for people, especially as people get older and put on weight. Wow. So I thought to myself, how many sweet potato fries had I eaten, eaten thinking that that was the wise choice? And it turned out to be not so. Now, why do I mention that this morning? I do realize that whether sweet potato fries are a healthy choice is not the most urgent issue facing the Western world. but. In its own way, this report does call to mind a question that is more large and more universal and more true, which is, what happens when a truth that we have been living with turns out not to be true? What happens when a fundamental assumption that we've made about life, we're living it, and it's not so in the end? So this was the subject of a great TED Talk 
by a woman named Benet Lappy. And what she says is that human beings tend to ask big questions. Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? Where do I belong? And the way that we answer those big questions is we have master narratives, very large stories that were here before we're here that are going to be here long after we're gone. And we attach ourselves to these larger narratives. If you're Jewish, she says, your narrative is the Torah. If you're Christian, your narrative is scripture. If you're American and not particularly connected to a religious tradition, then your narrative is the American dream. And you attach yourself to these big stories, these master stories in her phrase, and that lives out your answers to these big questions, why am I here, what's the purpose of my life, etc. And that goes along and you're living out your truth. And then B'nai Lappi says it happens to every person. It is part of the human condition. At some point you will experience what she calls a crash moment, which is that the master story that you had been living no longer works. It's no longer tenable. It's no longer true for you. Maybe something happened to you and your master story no longer works, or maybe just something changed within you, but now the master story no longer takes you in. For example, you always thought that you do a certain thing for a living. You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a business person, you're a teacher. That's who you are, that's what you do. And then all of a sudden, you can't do that anymore, or you don't do that anymore, or you're not doing that anymore. And what you've always done, you no longer do, and now you wake up on Monday morning, and who am I, and what am I? And your master story has had a crash. You always saw yourself as young, and healthy, and vital, and strong, and no issues, could do anything, no limitations. You were just indestructible, and then all of a sudden, one morning you wake up, and you're not and you have stuff to deal with and to manage, that is a crash. You always thought people in your life were gonna be in your life forever, gonna have my parents forever, I'm gonna have my spouse forever, I'm gonna have a dear friend or a sibling forever, and then you realize that forever is not forever. That is a crash moment. What happens when the parent, the spouse, the friend is no longer there? How do we respond to crash moments, to our master narratives? Now this happens in our reading this morning. Jacob and Joseph are reunited after 22 years. And it's very emotional. And they each have master stories and when they reconnect after 22 years, each of them experiences a crash moment. Joseph has a master story, and it really works for him. Here's Joseph's master story. I was sold into slavery by my brothers, betrayed by my family. I'm in Egypt, and through a combination of my own spunk and hard work and talent and God's love and grace, I rise to become number two in Egypt. I am living out a rags to riches Egypt story. And he's really good with that until he sees 
his father and crash. Why crash? All of a sudden, Jacob is much older. Oh, my God. Dad. Oh, my God. His skin is wrinkled. His hair is thinned. His posture is stooped over. He doesn't radiate energy. My father is an old man. And maybe I caused this crash. He weeps, says Rashi. But then Jacob also has a crash moment. Jacob has a master story. My master story is I'm a father. I love my sons. My sons are my life. And whatever they do, I'm with them. When they're hungry, I'm hungry with them. When they are full, I am full with them. When there's dislocation in our family, they need to move to, to Egypt, I go to Egypt with them. I'm with them. Now, there was one son who died tragically, but the ones that are living, that's what my whole life is about. And now he sees that Joseph is alive, and that's good news. He's alive. But then, wow, look what has happened to Joseph's life in 22 years. He got married, had kids, had this amazing story in Egypt, and I was not a part of it. I didn't know about it. Crash. They both crash. Now, what happens next? What happens next is so interesting. Two totally different responses. Jacob says, I want to leave this world. Done. Amutahapa'am. I want to die. And you might wonder, why does he want to die? He's just seen his son. And I think it's like, oh my God, I don't have energy for this anymore. I'm spent. I'm spent. I'm exhausted. I'm good. I'm done. Done. I want to die. That's Jacob. Joseph says, Dad, no, 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 no. Let's reinvent. And Joseph, at the end of the portion, takes his father and all the brothers and puts them in Goshen and says, hey, let's invent a new chapter. Let's adapt. And here's a fun fact and a telling fact. Joseph and Jacob spent 17 years together on the front end, 17 years before the separation. And then they reinvent this new chapter in Goshen, farmlands of Egypt, and it is, guess how long? 17 years, 17 years, 17 years. And I think the Torah is making an important point that you can have a devastating loss, a painful loss, a loss that's so painful maybe somebody doesn't even want to live anymore. And yet, 1717, it is possible to write a new chapter after the crash to revise your story and make it really beautiful. And that brings us back to B'nai Lappi when she talks about master stories and crashes. So here's her crash. B'nai Lappi grows up in Chicago, Illinois, in a Jewish home, a traditional Jewish home. And when she's a teenager in 1974, she experiences a revelation that results in a crash, she realizes that she is gay. And at that time, she felt there was not a place for her in the Jewish world. Crash. And she finds that there is a women's bookstore. And she takes a bus to the women's bookstore. And she goes and she finds a volume. And she starts reading about gay women. And now she can see herself in this book. And she reads furtively 
and quickly, and hoping nobody won't, will notice. And she decides that there's a place for her in those books, but there's not a place for her in the Jewish world. What does she do? And she talks about there being three options, and she lives them all. Option one, when your master story crashes, is deny, deny, deny. Deny the incompatibility and cling tenaciously to your master story. So she just decided that she was going to deny that she's gay, and she's going to continue to live in her world, the Jewish world that she knew that didn't have a place for gay people. And she tells the story that she had a very nice green leather jacket. And she liked this green leather jacket. And one day she wore it, and somebody said to her, you look nice in the green leather jacket, but you look like a pejorative term for a gay woman. And so she took off the green leather jacket, and she put it in the basement, and she never wore it again. So option one has the upside. It's a good upside. She's with the people she loves, with the community that she loves, that's familiar to her, but has a significant downside. She couldn't be who she was, so she leaves option one, and she does the polar opposite, which is option two. I cannot be a gay Jew in Chicago. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to be a gay Buddhist in Japan. And she goes to Japan. She feels that Japan is the farthest place from Chicago. And she lives a life of a committed Buddhist. And that has significant upside. She's proudly gay. She's out of the closet, but has a significant downside. She's not living a life with the people that are in her life, with her community, with her family. And one day she says she's in Japan doing Buddhist practice, and she realizes she's living somebody else's life. She's not living her own life, which led to option three. Option three is to revise her master story. I had a master story. There was a crash. The old master story does not work anymore. I need a new master story that is revised, that is honest, that is better, that is deeper, that is true to all of me. So here's what she does. This is just so beautiful. She decides to reclaim her Jewish identity. She goes to rabbinical school, Jewish Theological Seminary in the 90s. I knew B'nai, she is a classmate of mine, ordained when I was ordained. Now, at the time in the 90s, uh, the seminary was not ordaining openly gay people. So she was in the closet in the 90s. And she gets out of the seminary and says, I got to get out of the closet, and I don't want anyone to ever be in the closet again in the Jewish world. So here's what she does. She goes back to Chicago, the city she had fled, because she couldn't be herself in Chicago. And from the ground up, she creates a new yeshiva that did not exist before called Svara. S-V-A-R-A. -A, Svara. Svara is a Talmudic term. It means just obviously right. Something that is common sense wisdom. You don't need a proof text for it. You don't need a citation for it. It's just obviously right. And the idea was, it is Svara, common sense, that Jewish learning is a good thing. It is common sense that serious Talmudic learning is a good thing. And it is common sense that the LGBTQ community should have access to it all. So she creates this yeshiva in Chicago 
that combines serious learning and has, is open to everybody and it has a significant and burgeoning LGBTQ community and it is a beautiful thing. So what happens? She takes the most painful thing. They don't get me back home. She takes the most painful thing. I gotta leave Chicago to be me. And she doesn't let it go to waste. She uses it to create a new story in Chicago, ever greater beauty, greater love, greater inclusion. So here's my question for you. When there is a crash to your master story and to be alive is to have a crash in your master story, what do you do? Jacob and Joseph had a crash. They wrote a new story, 17 beautiful years. B'nai Lappi had a crash. She wrote a beautiful new story. Rabbi B'nai Lappi, the founder of a yeshiva in Chicago, deepened her own story, deepened her own hometown. What will you do? What new story will you now create? Shabbat Shalom.